and folks, welcome back to another episode of the Boombastic Cast, where you see interviews with all types of cool people, and you see all that inside baseball film discussion talk, where you talk about all different types of things, directors, actors, films, television, comedy, stage and screen, the obscene, authors, musicians, People that are on unexplainable missions, you know what I mean? You don't even know what they're going for. They don't know, but they'll get there one day, and when they find their way, it'll be another better day. What do you say? Alex, how you feeling over there today, brother? Hey, I'm feeling good. I'm happy that we are doing another, uh, personally, one of my favorite uh, segments that we are doing the show, which is 1080. You know, uh-huh. 10 best roles after death of an actor that we appreciate that unfortunately has gone to the great beyond. And uh, today we are going to be talking about... Philip. The, great, the great Bed Bath & Beyond? Yeah. We'll be talking about the great, late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, my. Yeah. Which, of course, uh, are those who have been following the show, the very first episode was uh, that we did was... Uh, uh, 1080 uh, for um, Robin Williams, which also unfortunately passed away in the same year as uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And uh, I'm happy that we uh, get around to uh, talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman today. It's true. You know what I mean? Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, quite an impact. Yeah. You know, he had what, maybe a good like 30 years or so, it, it may be within the system and the game and the Hollywood game. Yeah, uh, he came. He came in what in maybe his twenties, very young. I remember seeing him really young. Oh yeah, I mean, um, the first movie I saw him in was *Sin of a Woman*. That was the first yeah. time that I I I noticed him, and it's it's funny because, um, I mean. A lot, a lot of actors, especially early on in their careers, uh, end up being a, a certain type of uh, uh, character, a certain type of, you know, a niche that they fall in. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, in the beginning of his career, I would say was oh, always played kind of the the, the um, sniveling little uh, like rich boy that you know you, you don't trust. You know that you know he's he's going to watch. Watch his own back and and screw yeah. you over if if he uh, has a chance. But as Matt said in a um, uh, podcast that we did recently, that uh, when when you're younger and you're watching these actors and you're like, man, this guy's a real douche, you know. I mean, these these actors are you know usually nice people in real life, but they play these you know despicable or unlikable characters really well that you almost forget that they're putting on the show for you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, 1991, he kind of first popped on the scene. So pushing his 30th anniversary this year would have been the 30th anniversary of him. You know, it's kind of a good, kind of a good thing that we're racking it out this year. This is the 30th anniversary of Philip Seymour Hoffman acting. You know, yeah. very first role, a Law and Order uh, episode, The Violence of Summer. I uh, played Stephen Hanara. He went as Philip Hoffman. Seymour hasn't entered the picture yet. Uh, 1991, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
So yeah, 30 years, 30 years of Hoffman kid. Um, terrible thing, you know, heroin's a hell of a drug, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. That was quite a horrifying story, you know, he was very open, his whole career, I know, he was very open with like the drug situation. When he was younger, I know he talked about how, you know, he, he was, he did a little bit of everything, um, and I think, you know, he, I heard him in an interview, they made a joke about, like, uh, what was your favorite drug or something like that? And he was like, all of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and th- then he kind of cleaned it up, uh, I think, r- I think around the time the acting took off. And he, he lived that sober life for a little bit, or supposedly, who, who's to say? At least not dying of drug sober life. Um, then, of course, getting to... Getting to you know, where he was at. Now, he was doing more mainstream films when he died. Yeah. What's your take? You know, we both love Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Where, where do you think the Hoffmeister would be right now if he was still kicking it, doing it? You know what I mean? Right now. And you keep in mind, he died almost, what, 10 years ago almost now. It, like, oh, shit, I seen yeah. the date. I seen the date the other day, and it shocked me a little bit. Yeah, 2014, so not quite, but still. You know what I mean? Yeah. Still, uh, what did I say, 10 years? Yeah, it's still a good chunk of time where it kind of goes, huh, it seems like it wasn't that long ago. But what do you think Philip would be right now? If you, you think he'd still be doing, you know, he'd be dipping off doing artistic films? Because, like I said, towards the end, it was more of these mainstream payday movies. Well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, if you look at his career, he always, you know, he always had kind of like, you know, the big payday movies and then, you know, the artistic movies always kind of like uh, hand in hand, you know. Um, and, and and that's another thing I always appreciate. Plus also, in fact, what I always liked about Philip Seymour was the fact that even when he had a payday movie, okay, yeah. he came to work. He didn't just like, there's a lot of actors even some actors that both Matt and I appreciate that when they, when it's obvious that they're doing a payday movie, they couldn't care a crap about the job they're doing. They're just showing up, they're smiling, waving to the audience and say, well, I'm here to get paid. You know I'm here to get paid, and I'm not putting any effort in. But Philip Seymour Hartman always put the effort in, no matter what the role was. Uh, he reminds me of an actor I know named Alex Hawk. <laughs> uh, well, I, w- I wish I could uh, could be as, as good as Philip Seymour Hoffman one of these days. You know, one he- of these days. You're working towards it, buddy boy. You're working towards it. Keep on going. You're working towards it. I'm, I'm working towards it, but uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman definitely was a class act and, and definitely gone way too soon. For shizzle, for shizzle, for shizzle. So without further ado... Do you want to pop into the first of your top 10 AD, maybe your 10, as yep. we work our way to the greatest? Yeah, we'll uh, work our way to the greatest. Now, for me, number 10 is a film that a lot of people probably don't know, or they oh. heard, uh, saw it, but, you know, was uh, Pirate Radio. Now, I really liked it. It was based on the true story of a, a ship off the uh, UK that mm-hmm. kind of broadcast, you know, the... The um, the rock and roll that was deemed you know inappropriate for 
for the UK class. Yeah. And, and um, what I liked about it was he played the role of the Count. Um, and uh, I think one of the things I really liked about his role was honestly one scene that I, I – the reason I put it on this list was th- there's a point where one of the main characters was, like, into a girl – and the playboy of the ship, you know, ends up having sex with her. And, of course, you know, he feels, you know, really shitty and there's an altercation. And the Count stands up to, I, f- I forget what, it, they, they decided to do a competition where they, they like, climbed up the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the pole on the ship, you know, yeah. to reach something, kind of. Uh, and, of course, the other guy couldn't really do it, so... Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, the Count, took it upon himself to stand up and be, you know, like the champion for yeah. for this guy. And there's a point where he's going up, and of course he's getting winded. He's a bit tired, and he says these words. He says, "Man, I don't even like the guy." <laughs> and and that 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 I loved. I mean, it, it might sound like a little thing, but here he he shows that you know here he is. He's standing up. He's doing something that's right for a guy he doesn't even like. Okay, and because and 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 you know, well, it as as he's done so many great roles, and maybe it's not one of his biggest roles, but yeah. I really like the fact that he kind of embodied that. Yeah, he, he gave gives people a hard time and all that, but when it came down to it, when someone had to stand up. He stood up, and I I just liked it because it was one of his characters where, you know, it was a little more, I would say, subdued than some of his others, but uh, definitely a lot fun. Well, he he always came off like an everybody, you know, Joe everybody yeah. and everybody man because he he had, you know, his look wasn't exactly the Brad Pitt look, you know what I mean? So it was more relatable, I think, for a lot more people. And super charismatic, super sympathetic. You know what I mean. You could, he was one of those dudes you could look into his eyes, and just his eyes alone, you could he could tell you a story. You know what I mean. Yeah. That's why uh, he was one of you know he carried that torch. You got to. Oh. There was a period of time in all those in those big Hollywood films where he carried the torch. I believe he handed it off to like a Daniel Day Lewis when Daniel Day Lewis took that his last big run. You know what I mean? Where he was like top dog because he kind of. Yeah. I don't want to talk about another actor during our uh, 10 AD, but <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis had his ups and downs. All great actor through and through, but his careers had some ups and downs. And I think that he, you know, when Hoffman was like coming out of that artistic, the, that top artistic dog, I think he kind of passed the torch to Daniel Day-Lewis, like, like not for the first time, but, you know, when he got it for, uh, when he was going out, when he was start, when he started, when Lewis started working with, Hoffman's boy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, who's one of the greatest living directors. But, yeah, I've seen this movie. I remember uh, I remember Redboxing this. In the, the early days of, not Redbox, of Netflix, the early days of Netflix, this was one of the first movies I think I ever got because I was a huge Seymour Hoffman fan. Yeah. And anything a little slightly artistic or independent always caught my eye, you know what I mean? So I'd always look into it. Because even even as a youngster, you always know that there's more like substance to those movies than Hollywood films. Um, 
But yeah, I, I thought pirate radio was a cool. I liked the whole vibe to it. And now in life, it means a little more than it did then because we do the boombastic media and we do all the podcasting and stuff. And that's all it kind of is. is it's like a station, a network of people that don't want to be told what they have to do and they want to be able to do whatever they want to do. It's freedom, you know what I mean? It's all symbolic of freedom and the, the whole pirate lifestyle. You know, there's pirates that do bad things and there's pirates that have radio stations. You know what I mean? But I'm with it. Um, my number, my number ten film. Well, that would have to be a little film. Uh, that, this this film really got the the big pick because when I go back and think of the first time I ever remember recognizing uh, Philip C. Hoffman, I have it came from a little movie from 1993 called My Boyfriend's Back. All right. <laughs> Mr. Robert Shea, uh, not Robert Shea, uh, Sean S. Cunningham, Friday the 13th fame produced this, I remember. Um, and it's one of those weird 90s quirky comedy, like half kids movie, half teen movie, like teen comedy. Um, and it's just, it's about a teenager that dies and comes back because uh, he wants to go out with the most beautiful girl in school, which is very reasonable. And, and I think that's based on a true story because... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's based on my true story. See? Um, Alexander Hawk is back, walking, talking, zombified. You know what I mean? Christopher Walken doing it big. Um, But, yeah, Andrew Lawry's in it, Tracy Land, Danny Zorn, you know, and Bob Balapin, Bobby Balapin, you know what I mean, was doing a giant style. Um, I love the whole film. You know, Andrew Lawry's a dude that I'm surprised we don't see that much anymore maybe he's died maybe he's no longer with us because he was a dude that popped up a little bit the face is very familiar uh unfortunately he doesn't even want to pay for an imdb page so i feel like he's probably no longer acting that's my take uh a great guest for our show maybe we should <laughs> but uh I, I i enjoy it are you familiar with my boyfriend's back have you ever seen that yeah it's it's one of those things I, I remember seeing the trailer and knowing of it, but it's one of those movies I kind of missed when it came out for yeah. whatever reason or whatever was going on. I just I just haven't actually seen it. I mean, it looked it looked funny and all that, but uh, no, I have to admit I have not seen that movie. Directed by somebody you probably uh, are a fan of because he's a big actor as well as a, a, a director, Bob Balaban. Uh, he was in, like, Godsford Park, uh, The Mighty oh, yeah. Wind, Close Encounters, Lady in the Water. He, like, everything. The dude's oh, been yeah. hundreds of things. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, I don't personally know Bob Balaban, but I know his work. And he's City a great Slickers, he, he's a great character actor. Yeah, City Slickers 3. We were talking about that recently. It's yeah. funny. He, he, in his beginning, he had a little bit of some little some horror. We had My Boyfriend's Back. But before that, he did a couple episodes of Airy, Indiana, which is probably what got him that kitty horror movie. Yeah. Um, Tales from the Dark Side, got, got, the show got a real kitty vibe to it. And uh, Parents, of course. Parents um, with Quaid, um, the crazy Quaid. Randy Quaid. Randy, right? Randy yeah. yeah. You know, that, that that's a crazy one where the parents are like psycho killer killers, you know what I mean? Um, that's a fun flick. So that, yeah, that's, I definitely see how he got this job. The, the, my boyfriend's back is like almost uh, dedicated for him. But um, 
Yeah, Hoffman plays the friend in it, which is funny. So, like, whenever you got, you know, it, it's watching teenagers deal with um, deal with their their friend coming back from the dead, but without having to say cuss words and things Aww. that would really happen when when that happens. It's funny. The whole thing's plot. The plot of that is just magical. It's just magical, dude. It's a magical. Magical. A teenager comes back from the dead, dude, for a girl. Well, dude, 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 to be perfectly honest, the only reason for a guy to come back from the dead is for a girl. Okay? I mean, honestly, any other guy, I mean, he's dead and no girl will go after, he'd he'd be taking the dirt nap getting some good old Zs. It's true. Yeah. It's a tough call, I know. I gotta rewatch it. Though. I, f- I forget how he dies, but um, it's interesting. It's an interesting take uh, on the whole deal. But yeah, I'd say that's my number ten for for. Uh, and in my list, as we go through it, there'll be there'll be uh, more reasons than talent. We'll say <laughs> it might be a special place in my heart. Uh, it might just you know I've seen it at a special time. Um, I happen to like, you know, it could be a film where he's the star of it. It could be a film where he's a small cameo. And I try to do my best to kind of measure it out with letting some of those bigger films that he just kind of has co-starring or smaller, let them fall back. So what I'm trying to say is we might get to a film that I might put higher on my list that for him that I might think. Uh, maybe seven was a better film than two or one or, you know what I mean? However, whatever, but um, performance wise and such, and what, 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 the, what he does to us, the way he touches us on a special level, you know what <laughs> I mean? That's how we try to be. So uh, what's your number nine for Philip Seymour Hoffman? Number nine. Now this, this movie is is a classic that uh, many people even I believe there's a religious movement because of this movie, really? and it's called the Big Lebowski. Ah. Now, now he plays Brant in it. It's it's a very small role. Okay, it's not a big role, but um, he he plays a, such a little. Um, you know, sniveling little rich, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, assistant. Yeah, a little assistant to the actual Lebowski. Not the yeah, dude. So- I'm the dude, man. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm just the dude. And yeah, I, I got to say, for a certain, from a certain age to a certain age, Hoffman was that dude. Like, yeah. he, he could not break out of it even if he really yeah. wanted to. It was hard. It'd be hard for him to. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because um, I mean there's uh, there's uh, three uh, films that I'm going to uh, talk about on this list, which are kind of in that you know beginning part of his career where, like Matt said, he he couldn't really break out of the kind of the, the rich sniveling little you know, um, that backstabbing little rich boy, and. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, as, as, as we said before, I mean, he did it so well yeah. that you believe, you know, that, that he's... And, and the thing is, while it was a small role in Big Lebowski, he was a very memorable role. Of course. Uh, and, and, and the thing is that, you know, 
And that's the thing that I always loved about Philip is that no matter what role he had, you always remember him. I mean, no matter who he was up against, okay, uh, doing the scene with, you always remembered, uh, remembered him because he's, he was always doing his A game, no matter what the role. I think he's very relatable in Big Lebowski. He has that that quirky thing to him. But if you really pay attention to that character, that character is really just somebody that hates their job, that is going with the flow so they can get through with the day, go home, relax, come back, do their job. You know what I mean? That that's that. I think that's why a lot of people can relate to him and like him so much in that because he's just somebody that go, shows up to work and deals with the madness and goes home and tries yeah. to have a regular life. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, Big Lebowski. Uh, one of the, you know everything you said about a plus. You know what I mean? One of the greatest. You know from the Cohen brothers. You know what I mean? Who fucking kill everything they do? They murderize it. You know what I mean? Um, the Ballad of uh, Buster Scruggs. Uh, Buster Scruggs. Our boy Tom Proctor. You know, uh, if you want to hear some Cohen brothers story, you go go listen to the episode with Tom Proctor. You'll get your ear, get your fine dosage of Cohen brother material. But uh, Big Lebowski, yeah, he's great in that, and he—it's he, not a gigantic role, and I—I uh, I, I won't go any further because I do have it on my list. So <laughs> uh, we don't want to go—we don't want to uh, spill spill everything we got now, and then be left with the, our puds in our hand, as they say in church. Okay. So number nine for your boy, right? We're going for number nine. Yep, number nine. Guess what that is for me? It's the big Lebowski, homie. Oh, my God. Oh great my minds God. think alike. Yeah. Um, so I guess we can continue. Oh, great film. Great film, dude. <laughs> big, uh, superb. You know, the big oh, Lebowski yeah. really does hold up. It's one of those movies. Um, fucking Bridges deserves every amount of credit that he gets for it. I would actually be entertained in seeing a sequel. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't just go. Oh no! I'm sick to my stomach by the thought of that. They made that. They made like a weird sequel. Coen Brothers oh, didn't yeah. make, but Totoro made like a weird sequel with the Jesus character, which I thought was weird because it was like, and yeah. the Coens had nothing to do with it. I was like, very interesting. And like the trailer, kind of, it was. I know for marketing reasons they're gonna want to push it in that direction, but the original trailer. Dude, you thought you were getting the Big Lebowski too, you know what I mean? And it was like it was kind of genius on whoever was marketing it, but it's like that independent thing where it's not so genius after they buy the movie and realize it isn't what it is, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, but like, because that it popped on the scene and then it fucking flew out of here super quick. I haven't heard anything about it since. I think it brought on COVID. <laughs> but um. I'd love to see when I, whenever the Cohen brothers do anything, it's fantastic. You know what I mean? Fant always, always superb. Um, and the Lebowski's no 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 exception to the rule. And it, it made nine for me because again, like you, the same reason it's on your list. Not a big part. Very memorable. Very important character to the film. Um, and I, it also gets a little points taken away from it because uh, the comedic aspect. Right, I highly respect comedy, as you know, but the more dramatic stuff, I'm sure we both kind of lean more towards towards that number one spot, just mm -hmm. to go with. That's the way things are. Um, but we both, me and Alex, both are on the same page, and we hope everybody else is out there too. That there is very, a real fine line between dramatic and comedy acting. Um, 
you know, comedy acting, it looks easy. But it's, you know, when you really think about what they're doing there in front of a camera um, in multiple takes trying to get you to, you know, feel this emotion every take. It's the same thing as a dramatic thing, you know what I mean? But uh, what do you have for number eight over there, Big Dog? Ooh, number eight. Now, this this film, um, it, it came out and made a splash and then kind of disappeared. There was actually a sequel to it. Uh, the starred uh, John Malkovich. It was like a straight-to-DVD kind of sequel. And the film was The Talented Mr. Ripley. Now... I got a sequel? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like Ripley's Game or something like that. Oh, well, it was based off of a book, right? If I'm... Um, I don't know. Ripley, Matt be. Damon, right? Matt yeah, Damon? Yeah, Matt, uh, Matt Damon played Ripley. Jude Law played... The other guy, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, I think, played the the girl. There are all three of those people the same person. Yeah, but yeah. but but yeah. the thing is, I mean, as we said before, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman also plays kind of the same kind of. He, he's he's the he's the friend of Jude Law, you know, a rich spoiled guy who's you know just hanging out with with his buddy because they can go out and party and have wild times and have no responsibilities whatsoever. And um, I really enjoyed his portrayal because, like I said, it was a small part, but also he was like one of the only people that actually made the connection that something was going on with Matt Damon's character Ripley, that he was like manipulating things. And of course... In a movie like this, when you realize that the main guy's, you know, doing some shady shit, you get killed. And unfortunately, Mr. Philip Seymour Hoffman gets killed in this uh, film as his character. But um, I I just... Was that life imitating art? uh, Well, he did not overdose. He did not overdose. So there is a bit of a disconnect with that. Sometimes we overdose on life. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like I said, um, even though, you know, in the beginning of his career, he always played kind of these kind of stock characters, I think it's very important to, you know, look, you know, deeply into these uh, smaller stock characters that he plays because this is kind of the building blocks that he used when he got older. And, you know, he just, you know, kind of, build upon, you know, what he has already created. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting deal, you know what I mean? That, that, uh, rest in peace. Um, next up, mine eight. My eight. Man, when you got, when you, when you're putting a Philip Seymour Hoffman movie in the category, in the number of eight, there's only one movie that pops in my mind, brother. Now this film right here is a very not so not so seen, very rare film to get your hands on. I believe I got this on. I think this right here itself was like when uh, Netflix was sending out DVDs like this far, like that far back. Um, this is the first film by Paul Thomas Anderson. The film is called Hard Eight, originally called Sydney. Um, but then retitled Hard Eight, uh, the distributors retitled it, and it 
unfortunately, it's all I've never really seen it. Like, whenever I've seen it, it's been quick. You know, you can probably get it online. Um, I don't think it's on Amazon. I'm pretty sure you can order some type of DVD of it online on eBay, but I don't know if it's a bootleg or not. And I almost feel like it is, and I don't know what the full issue with it is. But uh, yeah, it's an issue. You, it's very hard to get. Um, it's the, you watch it and you see it's kind of fun because it's it, you, it, it's definitely a Paul Thomas Anderson story. You're seeing that this this super talent in the, in the very beginning. So like you can see what's to come with them. You can see that there will be a future. Um, a lot of the same themes that you see throughout his films. A lot of the same actors. You know what I mean? That you'll you, that that you'll see on other films on this list. You know what I mean? Uh, Philip Baker Hall. Uh, who's in, uh, been in just about every one of his movies, who's great. That dude's the older dude if, from all the, you know, he's in Magnolia as the father uh, the, with the daughter that's all coked out and stuff. Um, he's, in, he's in Boogie Nights as well. Uh, for, he's one of the cameramen, I think, in Boogie Nights or something. I could be wrong. No, he's probably more big of a role than that. John C. Riley's in it, of course. This is like the beginning heyday of the, all these working together. Sam Jackson's in it. Your girl Gwyneth Paltrow is in it, like you just brought up. Yeah. Um, really just great film. Really cool. Uh, if you can get your hands on it, get your hands on it. Um, you know, the stories of John played by John, Philip, uh, not, not Philip, by uh, John C. Riley. So it's one of those roles where they name the character, the actor, so he remembers. That's how that's how far back we're going in everybody's career here. But, you know, John has lost all his money. He sits outside a diner in the desert when Sydney happens along and buys him a coffee and then takes him to Reno. Sydney's Gwyneth Paltrow's character. I believe she's a... Um, um, like a call girl type deal without giving too much away. Um, long story short is like uh, a dude goes to California, uh, goes to Vegas hard on his luck. This girl appears to be this angel because she's nice to him and nobody else is. She's a prostitute. I think falls in love with her, realizes she has a shady past. And then I think the older dude is like a guy is a gambler who comes into the mix to, to kind of teach him the ways of how to gamble almost like rain man style where like he can like win money. So he starts to get his money back. And I want to say there's some weird triangle situation between um, him, Paltrow and the, and the, the older gentleman. Um, I won't go too crazy into it. Cause it, it, it's, it, it, it's, you, sh- you should seek it out because one of those movies that everybody, every other movie just about on this list, people have probably seen. This is a movie that I didn't hear about till way later in life because you can't get your hands on it. So I don't want to tease too much, but if you can get out there and try and find it, find it. Um, and however you can find it, watch it. You know, me and the Hawkman are totally against pirating. We think pirating's terrible. We make films ourselves, and we know the struggles of trying to, like, make money, and you know what I mean, off of it. So we would never say pirate anything. Um in a situation like that, maybe go on eBay and get that and not worry that it's a pirated DVD strictly because I don't think you're ever going to see this film any other way. And I hate to even say, but I think people should see it. And I don't know what else to say and how to see it, but, but it's that good that people should see it. And I don't know what the issue is. I don't know what the copyright or what the problem is with it, but I got a good film. They'll never be, they'll never be officially released publicly 
openly to the public. So I guess by any means necessary, get out there and try and get, get your eyes on it. You know what I mean? I'm going to try and see if I can get an eBay copy. I'll have you over to watch it. I hope it ain't bootleg, but dang, man. That's like the only way. If it's the only way you can see it. I remember I bought a Scarface DVD off of the eBay's back in the day. Back when, because uh, back in the day, that Scarface DVD, the Universal DVD, got very extremely rare. Um, if memory serves me correctly, if it wasn't released in that extremely rare, then it was just never released. And that's why it was so rare. Because when I remember boot, scar, like bootlegs of Scarface was a big deal, especially like early 2000, late 90s, when like it took, Scarface took on a whole new meaning when hip hop, you know, rappers were, were, were below going cribs and every cribs had a gigantic Scarface mural in it. You know what I mean? Like everybody, uh, everybody wanted to mold their life after Tony Montana. But a fun fact for people moaning, molding their life after Tony Montana, Tony Montana is violently killed at the end of that movie. So you should make better, <laughs> you should make better life choices probably. Yeah. What, yeah. Do you, what do you have up for your number seven, my friend? Ooh, number seven. Say hello to number seven, my little friend. Now, this is a movie that I actually mentioned at the very beginning of this. Uh, the top of the show. Top of the show. Yes. And it's by far one of my favorite movies of all time, Ooh. Sand of a Woman. Ooh, loved, I love this movie, and... I'm not afraid to say it. I believe that it's Al Pacino, one of Al Pacino's best movies. I love it. Um, and, of course, Phil Seymour. Hoo-ah. 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 And what I love is uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, he, like I said, with um, Big Lebowski and also uh, Talented Mr. Ripley, Son of a Woman, he plays, again, that little niche role that, you know, the, the the rich boy that you know is you know willing to you know hang out with his friend to dry just uh, just so you know he saves his own ass and the rich uh, the rich kid with the heart of solid black coal yeah yeah and uh, and the thing is it, uh, he was great he was such a little weasel of a guy in that movie yeah. that oh god I hate it. I remember watching that movie and it was like. I don't know who this actor is, but I hated him. I was yeah. like, this guy is the lowest piece of shit <laughs> I have ever seen. Right. And that's because he played that role so fucking well. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I mean, I'll, I'll never forget Al Pacino's there. And then you got little Georgie hiding in big Georgie's fat pockets. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, I, 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 I loved every bit of that movie, and, and if if Philip Seymour Hoffman wasn't there playing, uh, the uh, the young uh, Georgie, uh, then you know, it probably you wouldn't probably have this that visceral because he was great at giving you that visceral reaction. Yeah, when he when he played a role, especially when he played like these. You know, swarmy, uh, you know, young rich kid roles. He 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 was able to exude like this, you know, you know, uh, feeling when you watch him that you just wanted to, you know, just to punch him in the face. He did and, have that quality, yeah. And and of course, as time went on, and he did different roles that you know were you know better roles and and also nicer roles. 
then you know you gotta say, well, this is a guy with a lot of range, but he really owned that role. It really made you just want to punch him in the face. He he had he had the goods. You know yeah. what I mean? For shizzle, for shizzle. You know what I mean? Who was the who was the, who was the the star of that we were just talking about that we we're in love with him? Oh, Al Pacino, dude. Now, Al Pacino. Do you think Al Pacino is the original Nicolas Cage? Mm, oh, when we talk about over the top. No, no. The the thing is, I mean, Al Pacino. Okay, no. definitely. I mean, definitely. You watch a lot of his stuff now. He definitely, you know, is more. Especially after watching Heat, I think in in Heat that's where he really kind of molded his over the top El Pacino persona. Now I will give give a give Matt credit that he is right that El Pacino and Nicolas Cage do have one thing in common, and that is that themselves as you know the actors they have kind of created a kind of a persona around who they are. So you, so yeah, I mean, like Nicholas Cage is the wacky, crazy, out, out, out of control, uh, you know, madman almost. And then with Al Pacino is just a, you know, kind of, you know, a bit crazy, but in a different way. Almost, almost. Don't, I'm not taking it away from Nicholas Cage, but with with Al Pacino, it's 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 more cooler. Okay, more like you know. He's 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 the crazy over the top guy. But, yeah, but controlled but, madness. But when he he does it, you know, you, you just can't help but saying, "Oh my god, this guy is motherfucking cool." Yeah, El Pacino just oozes coolness. Yeah, Nicholas Cage, I love him. He's he's the best, but he doesn't quite you know ooze the coolness. It, it's more of like because he he likes to go in such different. Uh, variations with with his over the top personality that I it it draws you in and uh, you can't get enough of it. But out of the two of them, I would say you know El Pacino kind of more of like ooze still oozes kind of the like Scarface coolness factor, even now when he does his over the top personality. Right. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. I dig it. Uh, we are number seven. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my, my number seven was, uh, you're going to see a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson on this list. This is my second PTA, uh, installment. 2002's Punch Drunk Love. Ah. Uh, the Adam Sandler vehicle. Have you seen? I think, to be perfectly honest, I haven't seen that movie. I had a feeling you wouldn't have. Um, now, this movie is, it kind of went under the radar a little bit, I feel, but all the PTA fans know about it and love about it. Criterion put out a collection of this not too long ago. This was a gigantic change for Sandler. I think this might have been Sandler's first like official dramatic thing. I know he's gone on to do a little more dramatic things later in life, but I think this might have been the first deal. Um, now, this whole film is, it follows Sandler's character, who's just this dude, middle-aged guy, 
who just like hates his life and he's completely depressed beyond belief um, to the point where whenever he, he, he gets like overexcited and whenever emotion is heightened, whether it's sadness, anger, happiness, whatever, he just cries because he has so much sadness in him. The only way he can, that's how he releases it is through that. It's just, it, 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 you know, there's a girl that comes into his life that uh, it's really quite a tragic tale for real. It's uh, it's something. It's 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 definitely. It's not Paul Thomas Anderson's best film, but it's very good. And I honestly is even though I put it on my list on here, I haven't watched it in many moons. There used to be a time when I would religiously watch his movies, and I want to try and get back into that place. Um, but this was a movie that I loved because of this. It was just such a. The movie, it deals with sadness, and, and sadness is such a weird and delicate but but relatable for a lot of people subject that I like to kind of see it done well, and this is done well. It is quite – this just didn't – nobody heard about this because it was Sandler going completely out of the box. You know what I mean? Um, the same way that I feel like Uncut Gems, even though that's more modern and people can accept that now – like Uncut Gems is very outside of the box for Adam Sandler. I think that Punch Drunk Love was one of the first, if not the first, really outside of the box film for Sandler. So definitely, I probably said too much about the plot if people haven't seen it, <laughs> but definitely check it out because I remember the first time watching it, it being that much of a out of the box thing for Sandler that I was like blown away by his performance. And that's where like when me and you talk every now and then we'll talk about like, if we had, if we had the opportunity to put people in, in films, you know what I mean? No matter who it was, like the people that were big today, like I, I always say it in in the things I talk about, I always say I'd love to do like a dramatic film with Sandler. And um, because I think he's ridiculously good and it goes back to that comedy and drama thing. Like there's a very thin line between comedy and drama. The emotions are very, like getting there, uh, you know, getting them out and getting the audience to feel them is the same process and stuff. And it's, you know, I think, you know, Sandler's a dude that, you know, known for comedy and people will give him, you know, for his real kitty potty humor, like even the state, like when he did the, the albums back in the day, um, I think people still kind of look at him like that, but the dude's super talented. So what I'm trying to say is, Adam Sandler, give us a shout. We want to work with you, boy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Punch Drug Glove, great. Paul Thomas Anderson in it. He, uh, uh, Paul Thomas directed it. Philip Seymour Hoffman's getting angry at me. I'm talking about other people. We should be talking about him. <laughs> um, he plays a character to go into the thing of um, despicable shit. The character that Philip Seymour Hoffman plays in this is borderline, straight up despicable where you want to kill him. And he's so intimidating as a bad guy because he's kind of like the bad guy of it that you actually kind of worry about him. He becomes a person that you don't you wouldn't want to deal with, which you get when you when you kind of have an actor that's established himself and other things. Usually when they do something dark like this, you can go, okay. I don't need to be that much kind of intimidated or afraid of this character because I seen them do other things. But I, if, if memory serves me correctly, he was such like a scumbaggy, a character that you would see like in um, like blue ruin, you know what I mean? Or like a green room, you know what yeah. I mean? With Jer Jeremy Sodner type film there where like they're the bad guys are so bad. You want to reach into the screen and fucking strangle them. You know what I mean? 
or just get a shotgun and shoot into the screen and try and kill that beast. But uh, Hoffman was fantastic in it, you know what I mean? The film itself's great. It, it's, it doesn't have as many people that the, are usually in the PTA movies, but it's got a, a good chunk of them. Guzman's in it. Our boy Louis Guzman's in it. That's our boy, dude. We got oh, some yeah. stuff hopefully coming with him in the future. Um, Emily Watson's in it. She plays the love interest. She was kind of popping at that time. I don't really, I haven't seen her really do anything much uh, since then, but she did, She was great in this. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, definitely, if you've never seen Punch Drunk Love, peep it. And your best bet's probably going and getting the Criterion Collection next time it's uh, half off sale at Barnes & Noble. That'd be my, that'd be my guess. Uh, it, every, every release this movie's ever had, I believe, had a cool collection because even the original release had like a cool flip-out DVD to it. So, uh, and of course, Criterion killed it with their packaging's always the shit. So, you got to yeah. give kudos for that too. And it's weird; it's 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 one of his most artistic and under the radar. So, maybe it doesn't get a lot of releases. So maybe that's why uh, it's able to get a good release when it is, instead of just you know mass produced. Like Boogie Nights is way more well known. You know, There Will Be Blood will be is more way well known of, of those films that you know PTA has done. PTA is almost is also good for friends with uh, Tarantino, which I think's the shit. Uh, how cool would that fuck? How cool would it be? How cool would it be going to the movies with those two gentlemen? My oh, God, geez, that would be awesome! My goodness. Um, so I just got I just felt a hand on the back of my neck. So Philip wants us to move on to the next film. <laughs> but what's what's your what's your number six over there, boss man? Well, it's funny. It really is because. My pal, Mr. Matthew Fisher, has already announced it for me. And that is Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is my number six. I dig it. Now, the reason I, I, I picked Boogie Nights for this. Now, again, this is another, you know, smaller role of his. But what I liked about it is that, especially the scene with him and Mark Wahlberg, where he he goes and tries to get kiss Mark, okay, and the thing is, you know, it's and 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 what I love is that he he definitely plays the you know, the guy who is very kind of awkward, and kind of doesn't seem to you know really feel comfortable in his own skin, and I mean, there's a point where you have. You know, Mark Wahlberg doing one of the, you know, the adult scenes. And you got Philip Seymour Hoffman as Scotty uh, holding uh, the boom mic. And, yeah. and, and and just the look on his face, which, you know, it's obvious that, you know, he's so uncomfortable and kind of like, you know, aroused at the same time because, you know, he's, he's definitely into Mark, but of course Mark is, you know, into women and, 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 so, you know, but yet he's getting closer to Mark, so he, he takes a chance, and then Mark, you know, uh, pushes him away, and then, of course, you know, he starts, you know, hating himself because, you know, he took a chance, and then he got, you know, uh, pushed away. And, like I said, in that small thing, I mean, you, you feel sorry for, for the guy, right? and, and you can understand the situation, and and like I said, Philip Seymour Hoffman just 
he did so much with so little, and that's why why I have a lot of like roles of his that are, are smaller in him because he didn't need to be on screen as the lead or the supporting lead. You gave him just a few minutes on screen. He owned it. He owned the character. Yeah. And and you just watch watch his his eyes and how he how he uh, portrayed these characters, and and you just you know you believe everyone that he played, and and I think that it was another great performance of him. You know, was in Boogie Nights for sure. I think William H. Macy was the un- unsung hero of Boogie Night. I love it. Boogie Nights. We'll get a new. I got that coming up. But uh, I think uh, he, uh, William H. was the unsung. Cause, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. William H. Well, yeah, is- what I'm not trying. I'm, you know, I'm just saying in general. I was just saying it. Just say it, Hawkman. Don't you don't gotta pull the fucking switchblade <laughs> on me. Well. Um, for yeah, the whole gecko. I love the the character. Um, the whole that whole character in the ending is great. I love the ending. Perfect ending for that. Um, next up was number six. I just oh, wanted dude. to mention that before I departed. <laughs> uh, before I forgot that part, you know what I mean. Um, number six. Now this is a perfect example of uh, the fil- I think the film itself is a fucking beyond masterpiece. Um quite possibly find a slot on my 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 top 10 list of best movies ever um which is big i gotta put that list together one of these days but uh this film is 1999's magnolia another pta film you know this film if anybody's never seen this film my god you'll see this movie because it's kind of like uh the epitome uh, the peak and the embodiment of PTA and what, what, what his films can do, you know, the, and what they are and what they represent and, and all that. And high emotion with high style really makes you think, um, you know, there's certain, there, there, you know, you don't, you don't really get a, sometimes you don't quite get a substance with big films anymore, but this is, you know, PTA is one of those dudes that still stays super artistic. I will say that the last uh, Phantom Thread, wasn't really jiving with me that much. And I will say in, Incoherent Vice, you know, my let's just say my favorite part about Incoherent Vice is that we worked with Eric Roberts on the house across the street. And like two years later, he, he worked on a P.T.A. Anderson movie. And then like two years before he did our movie, he did a Dark Knight. That's my favorite part of uh, in, Incoherent Vice. <laughs> but uh, I think P.T.A. is the shit. But Magnolia, woo, fantastic. You know what I mean? Now, in this, Hoffman doesn't really play. It's His his character, I don't think, is that crazy. You know, I think the real, the part of, you know, like Julian Moore is fucking phenomenal. Stills the show in Magnolia, I think. Uh, C. Riley's really good at it. Hoffman's great. Tom Cruise is fucking ridiculously good in Magnolia. Um the Hoffman, it's more regular guy stuff. You know what I mean? There's, there, the only real emotion that I think is in that scene is in that film is the scene where I think he has to call up Tom Cruise's assistant, and he's talking about how, like, well, I got I, – this is his father. And he's like, no, the father's not dead. No, his father's not dead. This is him. I need to, We need to talk to him. 
if I remember correctly, that was like one of the biggest acting scenes of it, which he did great with it. But um, and the movie is phenomenal, so that's why I got to put that there. But Magnolia, pff, if we were doing, if we had all these movies on a list, and we had to say put all these movies in a list, Magnolia could possibly be numero uno. But because he was a kind of a smaller role in it, and we'll just say the acting, more of the acting was on the outside than uh, on the inside than on the outside. I, it was still great, but I don't think he was like the crowning achievement of the film, so to speak. But the film is a masterpiece, and there's other people in it. Like, and the, it, you know, Macy's really cool in this one too, dude. You know, and Macy kicks ass like nobody's business in this film as well. Um, tragic dude, tragic till William H Macy dude is is yeah, dude. What a body of work that gentleman has had too, when you really think about it. But I just felt like a really hard grip on the back of my neck again. So we're going to go into the next film. Um, you've seen Magnolia, right? Did yeah, I make yeah. you watch that or have you seen it yourself? Well, I watched it with you. I right. mean, you did have a gun at my head and said, I Well, the movie, was, the movie you was. You said cool. I had to watch the movie or you'd kill me. Uh, well, I like to say the movie was playing. I don't know if we were watching it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's a good movie. Yeah. I kick it again. So you on number five? Number five. Uh, killer. Now, number five is a film that we talked about on the very first uh, 1080. Uh, because it starred our man, Mr. Robin Williams. Yeah. And it also starred Philip Seymour Hoffman. And that was Patch Adams. Now, the thing is that I know Patch Adams was on your top ten of Robin, but wasn't on mine. Because, I mean, Robin, another great actor, had, you know, so many things that, you know, I think showcased him even more than Patch Adams did. But as far as I'm concerned, while Robin Williams is definitely one of my all-time favorite actors, Philip Seymour Hoffman stole that film. He yeah. was, I mean, what, what I loved is, you know, uh, we were talking about how he was kind of typecast as the asshole, the swami rich kid and all that. And in this one, what I loved was, you know, he had, he, he took that character and he changed it. And that's what I love about Philip Seymour Hoffman is that someone could tell him, okay, you're playing these type of characters, which are all the same, but he played them all differently. Yeah. So his, his uh, Swami Rich Kid in Santa of a Woman was different than in Talented Ripley, different than in Big Lebowski, and also different in... And, and the thing is, actually in Patch Adams, he didn't... Uh, he came off as an asshole, but you could understand him being an asshole. Because in his mind... He's trying to be a doctor. He wants to be, you know, a, a good doctor. And he works hard. And he's seeing Robin Williams, you know, coming in, acing tests while he's up late trying to study and, and, and get good grades. And, 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 and the scenes with him and Robin, the two scenes that just m- make me love him so much in this movie is yeah. the first scene where – you know, Robin Williams comes in and, and, and confronts him because the dean 
you know, claims that he cheated. And, of course, he knows that the only person who would, you know, come up and tell Dean he cheated was Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. So he, he comes and confronts him, and Philip Seymour Hoffman says, well, I know how, how, how much you study, and I know how much I study, and this is all a game to you. I want to be a good doctor. Wouldn't have a choice of being the, the fun guy or the guy who actually knows his shit. I'd rather take the asshole who knows his shit. Yeah. And then the complete turnaround near the end where he goes up to Robin Williams because he has a patient that he's trying to make eat, but she won't eat. And he knows that Robin Williams' character, Patch Adams, can help him. He doesn't like Patch. But he makes that that connection and, and just begs him. It's kind of like in Patch uh, in Pirate Radio, where you know he he does something with he he, he kind of lowers himself to someone he doesn't like because it's the right thing to do. Right. He knows that the the only way to help this woman is by getting the help from someone that he does not like. Yeah. And and that was a very emotional scene. And definitely, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman just owned that scene. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, kicking ass, taking names, doing yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And, and like I said, I... It might have been Robin Williams like a starring vehicle, but Philip Seymour Hoffman stole that film from Robin Williams, in my opinion. Maybe that's why he killed himself. <laughs> the uh, dark, one of the darkest endings of all time. Uh, I'm talking about Patch Adams, not yeah. uh, Robin Williams, but I guess you could interchange that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, that's why I, I always appreciated Patch Adams. You know, I'm a sucker for those fucking dark endings, man. Yeah, um, and I, that that's a, that, that that ending is superiorly dark. Um, I guess we won't we won't spoil it in case anybody out there has never watched Patch Adams. It's definitely worth. It's, it's a good watch. Um, more so now, might even fucking get a little more tears out of your eyes when you see this because you know the ending it is pretty, yeah. pretty. You know, Robin no longer being with us, and then. Oh, I got another pinch on my back, so I have to go with my next film, uh, number five. Number five for me, a uh, film we've already talked about on the show today. Uh, let's boogie our way into boogie nights. You know what I mean? Um, okay. To go with what you to further what you were saying before, uh, I put this here. You know, the boogie nights and Magnolia are back to back for me, both masterpieces. Uh, Great, some of the greatest films of the times that, that movies are being made. You know what I mean? Even more so, even you know, like it stretches generations. Um, but I had to give it up to him for this one more because of like the the, the more the character with the inter the interaction with like Wahlberg and stuff, and they're really not, you know, hating himself after taking. I felt you know that scene is the most probably well acted scene. There's there's that, and just the way he runs around. Um, just, you know, on the set of the film, porn sets and stuff, he just has that real, 
uh, happy-go-lucky vibe to him and stuff, where you like start to, you do start to like him. You know, there was it was beautiful storytelling, masterful filmmaking, where like you really like um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in the film, uh, and so like when he goes through these things, you're bummed out more because you feel bad for the dude. You know, yeah. what I mean? where. You know, when he's walking away after he gets turned down and he's walking down that driveway by the cars and he's just like, you fucking idiot. I feel like everybody has probably lived that moment where they they went out there on the limb hoping that, you know, something good would come of it. It was a complete fucking disaster. And they walked away like, what the fuck were you doing? What are you doing? So, like, that's more everyday relatable stuff. You know what I mean? Um, that film in itself is a masterpiece, but I do think there was a little more meat on the bones of that character than there was uh, in more ways than one uh, in that character than there was in Magnolia, even though I really liked Magnolia a lot. As you know, as you know, my friend, um, Boogie Nights, you got the Wahlburger in there. Uh, like we said, Julian Moore, I think fucking steals the show, dude. Her going, I sucked out the guy's cocks, dude. It's like one of my favorite moments in life. She's beautiful. She's very sexy. Uh, superior actress. One of the hey, best. Uh, Ju- Julian Moore, if you're listening right now, uh, Matt would really like you to be in this next film. And be on the show, of course. Yeah. Um, she, yeah, she, I, I always love seeing Julianne Moore. She always, she's an actress that always brings it. You know what I mean? She really does. She gives it her all. The late, great Burt Reynolds. You know what oh. I mean? Sad stuff. You know, this is probably, outside of all the older films that he did that he's known for, I got to say Boogie Nights was kind of like a shot in his arm of, like, getting him back out there. You know, the same way Tarantino does it, Paul Thomas Anderson does it a little bit, too, with, it, with a situation like that. Um, Bert was born cool. He stayed cool. He died cool. That's the Bert way. Um, yeah, Boogie Nights. If anybody here hasn't seen Boogie Nights or Magnolia or any of these movies, you should be watching them instead of our show for sure. <laughs> our boy Luis Guzman is up in this film, of course, as well. Love seeing him everywhere. He's great. Don't get nothing better than that. Heather Graham, Roller Girl, whoo, Don Cheadle. Before Don Cheadle was Don Cheadle, he was killing it in Paul Thomas Anderson movies. You know what I mean? William H. Macy, fantastic, dude. The ending, William H. When the way that they send William H. Macy out of this story, the way they, you know what I mean, they complete his deal before the movie's over. Whoo, I love it. I love it, dude. Love it. It's more of that. It's more of that. That those dark. You know, I don't want to give away too much away, but you should have seen it, dude. And the only, the last thing I'll say about this is, and all the artists that we know that that enjoy us and we enjoy them back there, we're friends with. If you're ever wanting to get me a gift, paint me that fucking painting of William H Macy. That's at the end of Boogie Nights when he's walking down the hall. When Birdie's walking down the hall and he fixes the painting on the wall uh, that's at that room right before the, his climax. Um, that would be the shit. I'd love to own that fucking painting, dude. If I worked on that movie, that I wonder where that painting is. You know, that's got to be PTA has got that or Macy's got that. Somewhere in the prop department or whoever the fuck has it, dude. But I wouldn't. Love to have that original painting. That would be great. Number four for the Hawkman. All right, number four. Now, this 
makes the uh, the list. Okay, it's 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 part of a, a franchise that I have to say I I wasn't a huge fan of, um, but because of Philip Seymour Hoffman in this film, yeah, and what he does with it r- reminds me how great of an actor he is, and that was Mission Impossible Three. Now, to be perfectly honest. Unless I was doing a 10 AD with Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible would never end up on the list. Okay? But this is a perfect example where Mission Impossible, I am sure that, you know, uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, was kind of like, hey, I need need to make a a payday. You know, he always did these big budget films and then he did more of his artistic films. And I'm sure that Tom Cruise, I mean, he worked with him on Magnolia, was like, hey, you know, I got a villain role in this thing. You want to do it. You know, you make some good cash out, out of it. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. But the thing is, I mean, going off of what Matt said about him in Punch Drunk Love, if he was half as, as bad and, 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 and evil in that movie, he was like the the king of villains in this film. I mean, as like Matt said, you just have this urge. You want to reach through the the screen and just just strangle him. That was how. I mean, there's a scene where he's with Tom Cruise and he's like, "You have a girlfriend? You have a wife? I'm going to find her, and I'm going to kill her in front of you." Yeah, and and just his matter of fact, his tone of of all that, and it's believable. Plus, also the icing on the cake is that, of course, Tom Cruise's character Ethan Hunt is getting you know all riled up, and he's trying to break him. So they're in this plane. They open up like the uh, drop door, and he kind of like hangs him out. And Philip Seymour doesn't show any emotion. He doesn't show any fear. He's just like fucking do it. Fucking do it. Do you, okay. Do you, I got a question for you. Do you think drugs played a part in the disheveled vibe that he put off? Because there's certain characters he goes into where he is so on the edge, you you like, and so intense that you feel like I said you feel he's almost dangerous, like somebody you don't want to deal with. And I almost wonder if he was a dude that dabbled, if he kind of figured out a way to. Uh, I don't know, either, you know, put do take something to put him in that place or maybe, you know, pr- do something and then come off, cut cold turkey or something so you have that edge that, you know, that you're yeah. kind of a little aggressive because you're kind of coming down or withdrawing. I mean, the dude was, homeboy was fucking with the heavy, like, heaviest drugs around. So, like, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? I'm, We're talking about. You know, these are drugs that if you if you ta- if you quit taking, like you you can be three. You fucking can't do anything but yak on your shoes. You know what I mean? Just fucking lay down on the bed, and feel like you're dying. Yeah. From what I hear, you know what I mean. I mean that could be a could be a thing. I mean, but I mean, there's like I said. I mean, it's just he was, and it's funny because there were like two villains in the film. Okay, there was, like, yeah. him, and then there was, like, another one that was kind of, like, mani- manipulating things. 
you yeah. you forget whoever the fuck that was, okay? Right. You you pretty much forget that Tom Cruise was even in the movie, okay? Right. Because he he was he, he he was just so cool and so so he was the best villain ever and like I said, I mean, I've seen a few of the, the Mission Impossibles and they're like, eh, okay, you know, popcorn, you know, type of, of uh, movies. But that film with, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, it was like, you know, taking a, a, a blockbuster action film and throwing in like a, a well-known Shakespearean actor inside it. And it just, you know, elevated this movie that you could be like, eh, it's okay, to like, oh my god, this is a friggin' awesome film. I can't tell you much about anything else other than Philip Seymour Hoffman and his role and his scenes. I, I literally skipped through like, all of the action stuff just to see his scenes in that movie. Yeah. I can say I watched it because he was in it because I'm typically not a Mission Impossible fan. Uh, I wasn't a fan of the TV show either, so I'm not being a hater. But um, I thought it was, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I thought he was good in it. And I enjoyed the film because he was in it. And I typically wanted to watch the movie without him. And I didn't, I didn't go back and watch the first two. So that's going to tell you something, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, dude. But, uh, uh, next up for Matt Fisher, uh, we have a film, I think it's number five we're on, right? Uh, no, no, what? we're on uh, number four. Well, you know, this next film is kept somewhere spe- uh, special, safe at all times, uh, mainly because it's very hard to come across, if I remember correctly. This is a film Alexander the Great Hawk turned me on to. I didn't know about this film until the Hawkman showed it to me. And then I believe I went on a quest through all of the uh, bull mooses in Salem, New Hampshire. Yeah. And I tried to find this, and I, I couldn't find it. And I online, it was even difficult, I believe, at one point. Maybe I should take another stab at it. But that film is the 2014 film, God's Pocket. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we won't go too deep into this, because I know that the Hawkman uh, is going to want to talk about it, and out of respect to him, making hipping me to this movie i'm, I'm gonna <laughs> let jive deeper on his but um this is it's an indie film you know what i mean uh what i mean indie i, I get the vibe of it being indie indie like well you multi probably like five to seven milli but like you know not a hollywood film hoffman i believe produced it as well so it's kind of like a passion project real fun quirky you know Almost Coen Brothers quirky, like serious quirkiness, but not quite. You know, and a little off, like maybe, like a, you know, great character for Hoffman. You know what I mean? Uh, and another another every guy's man type character that's fantastic. Uh, John Turturro's in it as well. John Turturro's another actor that's phenomenal in everything he does, pretty much. You know what I mean? Um, unless it's a, a ripoff of a Coen Brothers film or something <laughs> like that, which I, I should check out. We should watch it because it could be fun. But, um, yeah, I, I, God's Pocket was good times. You know what I mean? It was one of those deals. And uh, the director of it isn't quite an, an indie director. You know, he dabbles a little bit. He did that Spotlight movie with our boy in it. 
Our boy's in that one. Yeah. And uh, you know our boy over there. Yeah, Jimmy LeBlanc. You better, yeah, you better, you better recognize. Yeah. We're going to have to get Jimmy on the show. Um, Ant-Man, he also did. He did Civil War, the Captain America movie. Uh, uh, actually, maybe, no, he's, this is another actor. Oh, this is an actor. Actor director. What's up with all these actor directors, my friend? <laughs> you're, 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 you, got, you got Alexander Hawk does it. You got the dude that did uh, Richard III that you love so much that did um, did the, the train one based off of the old Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kenneth Branagh you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. your boy. Um, so, yeah, this dude, this director did God's Pocket, and he's got something announced right now. He's He did two shows. He did Mad Men. He did five episodes of Mad Men, which I, cannot, I, I can say I've never watched, but I do want to check it out eventually in life because it looks interesting. I know people loved it. Uh, they loved it just as much as the, the last TV series that this gentleman did. The show's called Love. Okay, fun fact. Maggie Moore is his next uh, feature-length film. Uh, and spoiler alert, Philip Seymour Hoffman is not in that film. <laughs> I wonder but, why. But we'll talk a little bit more about God's Pocket soon, and uh, I'll let you move into your number okay. four. Number three. Number three, three. is uh, a movie called Owning Mahoney. Now, Owning Mahoney is based on a true story of a guy who... He worked at a bank, um, very high up, but he had a, a real bad gambling addiction. And uh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is, is so great in this. And it's an underrated uh, film. A lot of people don't talk about it. Where you, you have him, and, and, and there's a, a point where I think it's John Hurt who plays kind of like the casino boss, where when when he, he sees all this money that, you know, he's he's dropping and all that, he tries to give him steak. He gives him, like, a great hotel room. He tries to give him girls. And, of course, he's not interested in any of that. Yeah. And he's he's just into the game. It's it's all about the game. And, uh, and how you play it. Oh, yeah. And, that's, and, wrestling. And, that's a wrestling joke. It's all about the game and how you play it. I had to. All right, continue. Uh, well, I mean, and, and uh, yeah, and uh, many drivers in that. Uh, he, uh, she plays his wife. And right. like I said, it, it's, it, it's, it just follows this um, kind of where he's only, he's only you know, uh, tipping his toe in. He's only, you know, <laughs> taking out enough money then, you know, win enough to, you know, put some money back. And then yeah. you see him progressively get even more and more where, you know, he starts, you know, going into more and more casinos and he, he keep on, you know, taking these loans and forging documents and all that. And, 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 it, and you see the snowball getting bigger and bigger. And the thing is that while what he's doing is wrong, okay, yeah. and he knows it's wrong, he plays it in such a way that you still kind of hope he gets away with it because he, he can't help but like him, even though he's 
it's kind of um, you know a, a chiseler and a cheat and all that. But yeah, you know, just like I said, there's, there's this you know kind of charisma that that Philip Seymour Hoffman has, even when he's playing these characters, where a little, I mean, what he's when he puts on a little bit of the charm, and he and and he has this gift where he can do that without being obvious or like overbearing. You know, when some people are trying to you know win you over in a role, you know, they they come off a little fake, a little over the top, and he just does these subtle things that you just. You, you see him going down this road and you just want to tell him, stop, dude, okay? We'll know where this yeah. is going. This is not going to end well. You're, you're a decent guy, but you know, don't do this. And 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 that's why the movie is so great because, you, at least for me, I just couldn't help but be like, man, I I hope he gets out of this, but it doesn't look good, man. And yeah. and he, he he knows how to just you know bring you in and and like the character even when sometimes you like you really shouldn't. Uh huh. Yeah, no, nah, that's a good flick too. That, that that was on the honorable mention list. There was a few honorable mentions. Maybe we should have got done honorable mentions before top three list. Ah, no, we can we can we can uh, do it afterwards. All right, cool beans, cool in the gang, so. <laughs> Cool in the gang, so so uh, next up, my number three. Number three. Number three. Number three for me is a 1999 film, uh, very under the radar. Okay, um, and that film is Flawless. Okay, okay. written and directed by Joel Schumacher of uh, Lost Boys fame, Falling Down fame. I what Batman and Robin. Yeah. Fame, shame, oh, shame, uh, yeah. shame, shame, shame yeah. on you. Yeah, he uh, they, he did the film. It's uh, it stars uh, Hoffman, of course, and Bobby De Niro. And this is one of the last times I think Bobby De Niro tried, uh, as far as acting goes. The only time after this film that I remember seeing him try. When I mean try, I mean like do something dramatic that makes you feel something. Is uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Which I know is very weird to say, but he, I think he actually did a really good job um, in it. And the thing, the thing, if I remember correctly about Silver Linings Playbook and the way that De Niro plays it, is De Niro plays it where he's kind of like, he's psychotic, but he's like pushing it off on his son. You know what I mean? And like the way that De Niro did that. That was the last time I, because I think Robbie De Niro is one of the greatest actors of all time. You know, as my teenage years, he was my favorite actor. If you if you ask me who's your favorite actor, I would say Robert De Niro, hands down. Robert De Niro is the man. You know, I own all the films. I love them. There was nobody. I loved a lot of other actors, but like De Niro was the dude. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, you know, I think Silver Lang Playbook was the last time I really seen him do something crazy, but flawless. Uh, you know, this is that too. His performance is great. Uh, and he plays a security guard who, who has a stroke. And uh, so he's at his, he's stuck in his like apartment and the dude across from him is Hoffman who plays a, a cross dresser, I believe. Um, and it's very ahead of its time. 
I gotta say, it's very ahead of its time because it starts off with Daenerys' character being like an old school dude that that's like the, the fucking like filled with hate and anger and like you know, it's kind of got that uh, as good as it gets vibe with Nicholson where how he acts to Greg Kinnear, you know what I mean? Like where he says all the, you know, calls him weird, weird, terrible shit and. Uh, but the whole thing of it is like once De Niro's character is is really fucked up, like the only person that helps him is the Hoffman character, and it's one of those beautiful stories because like the you know, and then you it, I won't spoil it because it is one of those under the radar movies and I don't it is definitely worth watching, but you know Hoffman deals with his own issues, but like it's very cool because he. It's just like a sign of the times movie, you know, it's it's grandpa being schooled in the new way of life type movie, you know what I mean? And I always think those are kind of cool when they're done right, when they're not done for an agenda. Like we see a lot of these movies get the best way to sum up flawless is a movie that Hollywood try to do now to win Academy Awards. But it was done in a time where it wasn't as accepted and it was probably more punk rock and cool to you know, it was more like, I, I respect Flawless so much more for doing it back then, but it's like a movie they'd be trying to make now, but they couldn't make now because both of those actors are at top-notch form, and the movie's just great. It, it really a great movie. It was a movie that I grabbed on VHS. I've seen somewhere used, uh, and I said, Bobby D and, and, and Philip Seymour together in like an artistic you know, one of these kind of higher budgeted indie horror, I mean, indie Hollywood artistic films, like, this could be good. And I brought it home and I watched it and I was like, very good, very good. And I never hear anybody really talking about it, so I want to put that on the list. And Schumacher is a director that's fucking phenomenal. Like, he caught a lot of hate off of that Batman and Robin ordeal, but like, as a filmmaker, he's fucking great. And I love the fact that he can poke fun at himself when others fucking it, it's the worst. They can't handle it. Um, so yeah, flawless for shizzle for sure. Go check that out if you if uh, you've never seen. I'm sure you can get it somewhere. You've never seen it, right? No, it's funny because uh, you describing it. Um, I now remember uh, seeing like the trailers and that when it came out, and yeah. it was actually one of those things. Oh, it's one of those movies I wanted to see, but because of, you know, things I just never got around to it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, just, uh, I mean, you got uh, Robert De Niro, you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman. And another thing I wanted to say about Philip, which is so true, that when, when you put him in a scene uh, with someone else, no matter... Uh, how talented the actor is, he always elevates. Yeah. So, I mean, Robert De Niro is a great actor, and then you have Philip Seymour Hoffman that has this, you know, kind of gift of elevating not only his acting, but anyone around him acting. And I can just imagine the two of them in the scene together being uh, you know, phenomenal. Yeah, the sign of a good actor. I mean, that's a difficult role to play because we're we're that that was a role that people would would give it. Hey, you know, I mean, you know, we both are. Things are really accepting now. You know, when we were like teenagers and stuff, when you've seen so you've seen a guy 
dressed up as a as a lady. However, you know, however it's supposed to be said. You know what I mean? When you see that back in the day, that w- it was it wasn't as accepted. So, like you you knew you, we kind of grow up knowing the vibe like that that like almost tabooy vibe to it. So when you see Philip Seymour Hoffman do this, the power of him doing a character like that that can show that can make you relate to him and let everybody know that everybody's just people. You know what I mean? That's the beauty of this role is that it's like he, he you know, the same way we'll, we will joke about weird things, you know, it's discussion, you know what I mean? If you see something on a movie, like if a movie from 20 years ago, 30 years ago had a joke in it that was off color or something like that, like I don't think that should be frowned upon because I feel like that stuff is great discussion starters you know what i mean it starts people to talk about these things everybody laughs together and then they can talk and they're not afraid of the subject anymore they can talk about it and it makes things better for that subject so in the same sense i feel this is that way where i think hoffman realistically opened up a lot of doors and it's one of those movies i hate to be corny but it's one of those movies that you could almost see a family that had an issue with that almost being bettered by the situation, bettering the situation by watching this movie, you know what I mean? Which I think that's kind of the most powerful and positive things that films can do is, you know, maybe that that, maybe that film made life easier for family. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe a child and their parent can now see eye to eye on a situation like that because now they watch somebody play it out and have like that vibe. I think that's kind of the beauty of it. And that's why I put it, you know, that's why it's on my list. I think it's a really cool film for that reason, you know what I mean? As well as well put, well put together. you got two great actors and a great writer-director. I mean, you really can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. And the theme, I mean, it made the theme, like I said, it, it, it's the plot of it is everything Hollywood would want to make right now, but I don't think they'd be able to make it as good as this film. Yeah. That's what I, that's, I'll, I'll close with that. Go check it out. All right, what's your number dose? Well, number two is God's Pockets. Oh, I've heard about that movie. Yeah. And and like God's that. God's Pocket is kind of like you know how how is it about owning Mahoney, where you have a guy who not really is like the best guy, and and you can't help but feel for him. I'm, because there's other despicable characters throughout the movie, like the kid. Bring up the kid, horrified. You oh know, yeah, wanting to kill people. Talk about wanting to reach out and touch somebody. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, it's it's a, a perfect dark comedy. It's a perfect commentary on kind of these. I mean, God's Park is kind of this small little town mm-hmm. full of. Well, best way to uh, uh, call them is townies. Yeah, and uh, and you have uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's married to this woman whose son ends up getting killed, and then there's kind of like a mystery around that. And then you know, there's a lot of you know twists and turns. But uh, but the thing is that I mean. And and it and it's funny because if you sit down and like I said, you you look at his earlier works where he's playing these, you know, weaselly little, you know, rich kids, you know, you just wanna slap. And then you get to, you know, these villains you just hate, you just wanna 
reach into the camera and just strangle because and then 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 he gets to these roles which are my favorite roles he plays where he plays people that are morally questionable that are you know people that you're not really supposed to like because of what they're doing but he is able to give them such a a likable and 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 and, and charismatic feel to them that even when they're doing these things, you can't help but root for him. It, it's, he was a perfect actor to put into a film of despicable characters. Mm. And even though his character is despicable, you can't help but see him as the least despicable of all the characters. You know, it would have been a really cool movie to see. Right. Like a, like a dirty rotten scoundrels with him and Tom Hanks, where they played like scumbag characters. That'd be great. That would have been awesome. You know, we've heard we've heard funny things about the Hankster, but fucking, you know, Hanks is one of those dudes. And dude, I, you know, if he gave me a call tomorrow, I'd have to. At first, I'd say it's all it's all false, right, Tom? And he go absolutely, and I go, all right, buddy, let's do it. Let's fucking do it. Um, I would love to see, and because of those allegations, you will never see Tom Hanks do anything dark again, yeah. ever. But I would love to see. The last thing he did that was kind of dark was that Lady Killers thing with the Coen brothers that I, that I remember. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't, like, super dark, but it was dark. It was dark. It was, if you don't call that dark comedy, I don't know who he is. Well, well I, mean, I mean, the thing is, the original movie, I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I, I don't want, but I mean... I, I love the Coen Brothers, but the Coen Brothers Lady Killers, I'm I'm sorry, as far as I'm concerned, was kind of a misfire. I didn't say it was a great Coen Brothers movie. But, but, last but, time I seen Tom Hanks doing anything dark. Yeah, but and I then, mean I mean the thing is that dark fucking comedy, rewatch it. If you I, don't I, think that if you don't think that's a dark comedy, rewatch I, it. I, I think it was attempting to be a dark comedy and failed. Dude, I remember there's a part where there's there's the, the Asian gentleman and he falls down the stairs and breaks his neck and never like the c- cigarette never leaves his mouth. And even though he dies, I laughed out loud. I think I even went to the theaters to see that because I was such a Coen Brothers mark at the time. I laughed out loud for more than a minute, dude. That moment is great. I love it. Okay, Matt, 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 all I have to say is Go and and I, I think I have oh, a copy somewhere. Watch the original. The original is a dark comedy that is beautiful. Peter Sellers, Sir Alec Guinness, and um, Tom the, Hanks in the original. No, no, Tom Hanks. Why the fuck are you talking about at home, dog? No, we're talking about Tom Hanks. We're, we're talking about Tom Hanks upsetting Philip Seymour Hoffman by talking <laughs> about Tom Hanks, dude. All right, back into it. Okay. Hmm? Next up for me, my number dose. We're on number two. Yeah. All right. A film that I love that people, I think it missed, missed the mark for certain people because, you know, I'll talk to even a gentleman that loves Paul Thomas Anderson as much as I, Mr. Mike Calvin, a past guest on the show. This movie went over his head, I think. He did not like this film. Um, and that is Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. All right. I think that The Master is uh, it's a cult film. It's a movie about a cult, which I automatically love from the get-go. Uh, PTA was doing cult film before our boy uh, uh, Ariasta came into the picture. Yeah. 
And um, the, the what I like about this movie, there's an underlying psychosis of alcoholism that every decision's made because of alcohol. And I liked that. When I looked at it, it was like it was a cult atmosphere. But I felt like the, the there was like a real subliminal alcohol, like alcoholism vibe to it that I that I don't know if everybody's seen. I mean, alcohol is obviously drinking in it, but the way that alcohol kind of played a part in the film struck a weird chord for me personally that made me like it a little more than the regular person. But I think you know. Jaquim Phoenix, or however it's pronounced. Somebody told me I pronounced it wrong recently. Uh, but Jaquim, I call him Hakim. I, I want to continue. To I, I, I think it, I think it's pronounced Joaquin. Joaquin. Joaquin Elijah Juan Phoenix, my favorite basketball player from 1994. Um, you know, he phenomenal. This is after he lost his mind. If anybody remembers, there was a time when he was a he he wanted to be a rapper. And he fucking straight up lost his mind. And what's they made a document? Him and Affleck's brother, Casey Affleck, made a documentary about it. And if what I think happened is, I think that it was a it was a weird game they were playing. I think he was trying to. He he thought he was for real, and then he had a breakdown and said, uh, "Well, rap ain't working, so I should probably try and make money acting. So I'm gonna go back to that." But um, he had a weird break. I remember there was clips of him doing coke in the club and he was all weird and shit. Like it was a big, he had a weird Letterman performance where he went on there and got interviewed and was like, was just like out of control and spacey, not Kevin Spacey, uh, spacey often out of space. Um, he's got enough problems. He doesn't need those spacey issues too. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a trip, dude. Uh, and he's, he, I like him all. I like this whole movie from beginning to end, dude. Amy Adams is fucking really good in this too. Like I said, I love the vibe of it. I think that this is one of those movies that you need to watch a few times to really take it in and digest it and get the vibe to it. I think it goes deeper than the surface. And usually when you see a film get released to Hollywood standards, theatrically, they're not looking for anything beneath the surface. They want it right there on the face, right on the surface, so you can see it. You know what you're getting. They want you. You want to, you know, you know what you're paying for, so to speak. Uh, and I think that the master, a lot like Mother, the uh, the Darren Aronofsky movie, which I think is a masterpiece too. I think that they were so they were too much. It was too much movies for the mainstream audience, and that's why they didn't quite gel. Um, it's unfortunate because they didn't gel. They didn't do as good. Both of them didn't do as good financially. So that's why you don't see stuff like that. I know a lot of people that hate mother, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling my ear getting twisted right now. <laughs> so yeah. And, and, and Philip Seymour is the star. Uh, he, they get, he takes top billing over Phoenix in this, which rightfully so not only, I think at this time Hoffman was the bigger star, but he was also um, a veteran PTA actor which that holds, holds, you know, that holds some credibility to it as well. And he was, you know, Phoenix coming into it. There wasn't a lot of other PTA regulars in this one, if I remember correctly. This was a lot of new faces. Um, Totoro was in it. Um, but outside of that, like, yeah. But, yeah, if anybody's out there digging, who has never seen The Master, go check it out. It's a cool flick. Um like all his films are, uh, you know, people hated on it saying it was a slow burn, but it is what it is. 
I think this was the last. I'm a big fan, but I think this was the last one that I really would consider a masterpiece. Uh, yeah, you know, like I said, Incoherent Vice didn't quite do it for me. I own it. I did buy it. So if, if Paul Thomas Anderson is listening, I bought it, homie. I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm going to try again for you. Um, but that one and, 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 and that, that Phantom Thread, oh, that Phantom Thread, I don't even think I finished Phantom Thread. That's like how bad that was. Um, I think I made fucking Daniel Day-Lewis retired off of the Phantom Thread being fucking giving him nightmares. You know what I mean? Um, I'm sure it was a great work environment. I don't know. I don't want to hate. I like Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> a lot. Uh, I'm hoping. I think he, he disappeared. He did music videos for a little bit. So I think he felt the burn of, of those films not being as successful. But I do think, I think he's coming back with something else, uh, which will probably be good. Because usually when you get a good run going for a filmmaker um, and things start to get easier and easier, I think mishaps, mishaps happen and stuff. And then every now and then they take a break and they gather their bearings again. And then they kind of, they head back into it almost like a fresh start. And they usually fucking kill it. You know, Coen Brothers did it with No Country for Old Men. You know, a lot of filmmakers do that. And uh, Tarantino did it with Django, I felt. Um, and I, these are all people that are the best. Like, I, we bust balls, but the, the filmmakers we just mentioned are some of the best living directors. So you can't, nobody can be too angry at us. So what do you have? Next up is your numero uno. Numero uno. Number one. Yo, I is, think is, is Capote. Now, your boys got that for number one, too, so I'll just automatically spill it. Let's talk about Capote a little bit. Okay. Huh? Well, th- this is actually kind of uh, cool because it's the first time we did uh, 10 AD where we have two uh, uh, things that are tied in the exact same place. Yeah. Number one for Capote, and then uh, what was it? Uh, Big Lebowski for yeah. number nine, I believe, we both yeah. had. Yes, but, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, the one thing I want to say about Capote is actually straight from uh, Philip Seymour uh, Hoffman's uh, um, voice from an interview was that up to that point, he said he loved his career because he was the guy, oh, he always had a job. He was that guy that you're like, oh, I know him. I've seen him in something. But no one really knew who he was. Yeah. No one really knew Philip Seymour Hoffman's name that much. I mean, he was one of those uh, character actors, one of those you know journeyman actors that you know you see in all these movies and you always love, always respect. But their names weren't always at the top of your head. Right. But, but Capote was the one that I think it was his like first real starring role which then kind of led to, you know, all these other great roles that he had later on, you know, including God's Pocket and and uh, and we didn't talk about but Most Wanted Men, which is another great film that he yeah. was in as a starring role. But, um, I mean, he, he, he transformed into Capote perfectly. He had the voice down, the mannerisms... And and he was, I mean, Capote himself was kind of like the, 
like the perfect accompaniment of characters that Philip Seymour Hoffman had done up to that point. Because he was a character that wasn't a very likable guy. Yeah. Okay? But because Philip Seymour Hoffman was doing the role, he gave it so much heart and so much, you know, in-depth that you couldn't help but but still feel for him, even though he was, you know, like I said, at times kind of pretty unlikable. Yeah. And and I think it definitely was his best performance. Yeah, like I said, there might be films that I think are better films, but when it comes to acting, this has got to be his greatest acting performance because for anybody out there that has never seen an interview with the actual Truman Capote, that dude's a trip. Like he, that's a character. You know what I mean? That you know, that's that's something else. Uh, very entertaining dude. There's a when I say something else, that's not an insult. There's a lot to him. Go check out the interview. There's body movements. There's a voice. There's a whole way of speaking. There's a you know what I mean. There's a. It's not just. It's not just playing your typical person, as you see if anybody who's watched the film. Um, if you've seen the film, you probably I could definitely see people going, "Oh, he's doing this over the top." If they never seen the actual character, I could almost see somebody being like, "Oh, he's hammered up a little bit," you know what I mean? But he that he is he kind of became Capote, you know? Yeah. But Capote does keep a special place in my heart, man. Two thousand five when this came out was prime wanting to be a filmmaker time. This was like right around the time I was kicking off wanting to make films. You know, this is a time even the Hollywood indies were good. You know what I mean? Like, this is a time when I was, I'd be glued to the Academy Awards because I'd have a dog in the fight and be like, oh, I really hope he wins. You know what I mean? And I was rooting for him for this. You know, Clifton College Jr. is also in this, yeah. uh, playing one of the kids. For anybody that doesn't know what the story is, the movie revolves around Truman Capote writing the In Cold Blood book which was um, a book about two teenage or mid, you know, early 20s kids that I think uh, kidnapped a girl and killed her. God, uh, and if I remember, without teasing, if I remember correctly, I guess I won't tease, uh, watch the movie. But I remember there was, I believe there's like some funky twist that uh, kind of breaks your heart a little bit, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, superb, very good, um, you know, this dude went on. The director also did that that Foxcatcher movie that I never seen, but I heard I heard that was good. And he also did Moneyball, which was on my honorable mentions because Moneyball. I give Moneyball credit the same way that I give for the love of the game credit. It was directed by Sam Raimi because they make me care about something I don't care about for two hours. I don't give a fuck about baseball. You might see me wearing a Red Sox hat. I don't give a fuck about baseball. I'll watch it if it's on. If someone says, here's tickets, I'll go and have fun. But I don't care who wins, who loses. It's all about how you play the game. You know what I mean? Like, those two movies actually got me invested in baseball for those two hours, and I cared. So I always, you know, like to give credit to them because if you're making me care about something I don't care about, you're doing something right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, Bennett Miller is the, the director of those films. And, uh, he does it right, I guess. You know what I mean? 
But, uh, yeah, Hoffman, dude, tra- transcends. I think he lost weight and everything, dude, to play this role. Like, he, you know, Capote was kind of like a little fragile writer type dude, you know what I mean? Very, very good transformation. I've supported heavily. Uh, I remember buying it. Um, this this might have spurred off. This was probably one of the movies that kicked off that whole Hollywood indie artistic style. I remember that they tried to do that Doubt movie with Meryl Streep uh, a couple years after this. It might have been the follow up, and uh, it was that they wanted that to be an Academy Award winning film too, but it wasn't that good. And I remember that movie like being not that like not like not worthy of uh, Academy Award. Like I remember that movie being very lackluster. And if I remember correctly, the whole movie goes back and forth between Hoffman and Meryl Streep kind of like trying to out the other one uh, of being bad. And then by the end of the movie, if I remember correctly, it doesn't even tell you who the bad guy is, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong, uh, which is foolish, terrible. That's a waste of time. You know what I mean? It's like uh, it's like watching a fucking two-hour, two, two ten-minute movie and just watching two hours of it. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, Capote, fantastic you know what I mean? Uh, some would say this was the peak. And I agree with you. That thing you said about up until this point, he was almost like that guy. Yeah. Oh, that guy. I remember, oh, that's the guy from this. And they put some respect on his name. Oh, yeah. On this one. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah, yeah, because after, after, uh, after Capote, that's when he started having the bigger roles, the bigger supporting roles. He became... Um, yeah, like you say, he became like the man, and yeah. uh, it was funny because uh, the director that you were talking about that did Capote, um, I think, uh, because I saw an interview with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, where uh, he was friends with the guy, you know, years before before this uh, movie, and you know, they literally begged him begged them to to do this role and he really didn't want to because for the fact he was happy where he was he was you know he was always working he always had good roles he always had fun but he didn't have people like oh it's philip seymour hoffman i gotta get a picture with or can i have your autograph or anything like that he was just the guy that you know you saw in boogie nights he was the guy you saw in center of the woman and uh and then, and he knew, he knew, he said, when, when he agreed, uh, finally broke down and agreed to play Truman Capote that his life was going to change because he knew that it was going to be the film that really kind of, you know, made him a headline star. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's one of those deals. Yeah, Capote was. I think that was a that was definitely uh, the way me and you will talk about how er- eras and stuff like that, yeah. and like there's, you know, you, you you don't know when you're when you're when you're blossoming into the next era. You don't know. You when you look back on it, you can go, oh shit, that's when this changed. Or that's when we started doing this. Um, that was definitely the a new era. You know, a new plateau, if you will, in his career. Um, maybe, would you call it the peak? 
professionally quite possibly the peak of his career professionally i wouldn't say yeah. talent wise but professionally probably i would i would i would say that it was I mean, you can always argue that what he did afterwards might have been better or more, you know, maybe mainstream. Yeah. But uh, I think it was it was definitely the peak of when he changed from being that guy being to being Philip Seymour Hoffman. That was that was the time when people were like, "Oh, his name became like you know on the tip of people's tongues," instead of like. I can't think of that guy's name. He was in these movies. That was the moment that he became Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I agree. I definitely, I definitely agree with that for Shizzle, for sure. For Shizzle, for sure. Yeah. Uh, he directed one film. Did you ever? Ch- did you ever see it? Uh, what was the film? The film was called Alexander Hawk Never Seen Me. That's why I'm where I'm at. It's really called Jack Goes Boating. Okay, okay. Um, actually, I didn't know he directed that. I have I not did. seen the movie. Yeah. It was it was one of those that was very artistic style-wise. Um, I think it's based on a play. Um, a limo driver's blind date sparks a tale of love, betrayal, friendship, and grace centered around two working-class New York City couples. It very possibly could be. Hoffman looks like a ghost uh, in this one. That's Jack. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't get to see that. It's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of films of uh, Phillips that I haven't seen that I do want to see. So we, uh, I mentioned, we kind of talked about all my honorable mentions with the exception of one, which is Twister. You know what yeah. I mean? That was uh, a good film. Twister is a fun film. Rest in peace, uh, Bill Paxton, our boy. Um, and uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead was a good flick, too, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one, too. Did you ever see that Synodox New York movie? Which one again? The one I forget what exactly. Sin is sin. I forget what the fuck they call it. It's where he builds. It's kind of like a psychological, almost uh, spotless mind type film where, like, he builds New York in a, like a model, but it's like really New York. It's some weird thing. Oh, no, like, I, that's a new one. He rents out a warehouse. He's going through like a midlife crisis or something like that. He rents a warehouse. And to get over his fears of the city or something, he, like, builds a miniature city within this warehouse that he can kind of, you know, look, fuck with or whatever, and it makes him feel better or something like that. I don't know. Huh. <laughs> only okay, yeah. Talked about, yeah. yeah. Only Mahoney. Yeah, no. Money for nothing and the chicks for free. Leap of Faith. You ever get into Leap of Faith, an earlier film with, uh, what's his name, Martin, Stevie Martin. I think that was Stevie Martin, right? That was, yeah, Steve Martin. Deborah Winger, I believe. Yeah, I don't don't remember that one. Uh, I remember Long Came Polly. That was uh, Ben Stiller and uh, Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, he was the friend. He was fun in that. He was the friend where he was getting, the film crew followed him around through. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's a dude. To go back, when you were talking about how, like, he was friendly with the director, I felt like Philip Seymour Hoffman was probably, like, friendly with everybody because you assume he yeah. always had that kind of cool, you know, he wasn't happy all the time, obviously, as we found out. But, like, he always had that kind of cool vibe where, like, if you – you almost feel like if you walked by him on the street and stopped, he'd talk to you for a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he seemed cool like that. Um, and the, so, like, with those – yeah, you, you stumble into a Philip Seymour Hoffman and as an actor. And if you're a filmmaker that has budgets and can make these films that he'd want to be in, then, of course, it's going to stick because yeah. he's going to – I felt like I bet he was very magnetic is what I'm going for. As a person, yeah. I get this vibe like he was a very magnetic person. Like he was kind of like if you seen him, you'd go over, you'd want to go talk to him, you know, not just because you're a fan, but, you know, a previous experience you may have had with him. If you know him, he's the type of dude that like if you go to a party, you go to a Hollywood shindig and you see Philip there, you go talk and go hang with Philip because at least that'll be, you know, entertaining. Yeah. Uh, at least, you know, at least from where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, the Hunger Games. I never got into the Hunger Games films. Yeah, I mean, I saw the first one. Uh, I really didn't get into it. Um, what I do remember is that actually the character he plays in the Hunger Games in the books, uh, yeah. I was supposedly is like a very small role. But because they got Philip Seymour Hoffman in and, and they wanted to, you know, give him a decent role, they actually expounded upon the role in the movies. At least that's what I've been told. I never read the book, so I watched the movie, so I can't really say. Uh, he did pass away in the middle of the last one he was in. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, two movies I can't say much about, but I heard was good, was Charlie Wilson's War. Yeah, in the eyes. In the Ides of March. I heard he was good in that, too. I, I never saw Ides of March, but I uh, saw Charlie Wilson's War. And, and you know, another very magnetic character that, you know, I'm, I mean, it, it says something about about an actor when you, you, no matter what, because you can take many different, you know, great actors and you put them in the scene together and you're like, oh, here you have, in Heat, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, both great actors. They both own the scene. You love them. But with Philip Seymour Hoffman, you put him in there. The other people, they, they might even be better, but you still can't stop looking at Philip. So Philip always, no matter who, wh whoever's in the scene with him, whether it's Tom Hanks, whether it's Tom Cruise, whether it's any other time you can think of. Phil yeah. Seymour Hoffman always, you know, just grabbed, because there was always so much going on with him. Yeah. We love Phil. We love him. Do you want to say anything in closing? I, we, I think we've come to a conclusion on our yeah. top um, I got nothing to really say other than if you have not seen much or any of, of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's work, I suggest, you know, anything, even the, the where he's only a small part, because he was, he was one of those actors that truly 
made the phrase that there's no such thing as a small part, only small actors, a a a a reality because he was one of those few people that could take a small role and own that scene for as long as he's on the on the screen. And it didn't matter who he was in the scene with. Yeah. Because whoever he was in the scene with always looked like they were trying to be as good as him. Hell yeah. Yeah. You know? Fucking, so, you know, if you, anybody out there, 30 years this year would have been his 30th year acting. Yeah. Uh, definitely... If, if there's a film on this list you've never seen that we give high praise to, maybe get get a little marathon going. Maybe if it's a, you've seen all the movies, maybe pop on a movie you haven't watched in a long time. You know, think about Philip Seymour. You know what I mean? Um, gone way too soon. Way too soon. You know what I mean? February 2nd, 2014. You know? it's uh, 2014 was a shitty year. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, so, yeah, go watch a Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. Rest in peace to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, it's unfortunate, man. It's unfortunate when when you when you go when you when you die early. There's less body of work to be to be put out there and trying to stay in the you know trying to stay in the mind's eye. And the way the way films are being pumped out so much that there's always something new to look at. Uh, so the people that want the older stuff are going to have to go find the older stuff soon, you know? Yeah. But with that being said, if you like this episode, go look at some older episodes of the Boombastic cast. Where you're listening to this in the audio form or where you could possibly be watching this in the video form, which would be on the Boombastic Media YouTube page. That's where you'd find the video versions of our interviews and such, some bestos and all types of stuff. The first two seasons of the Boombasticast or on Boombastic Media YouTube. We got a Facebook page. Uh, Boombastic Media is our production company for the podcasting thing. Uh, we have three other shows on the network. If you like this, uh, we, we kind of have our hand in all of them. So uh, go peep them. And uh, if you want to help out a little bit, like Philip Seymour Hoffman would like you to do, uh, if he had one wish, of course, he would say, hit up that Boombastic streaming Patreon. Let the boys know you'll appreciate the episode in my memory. You know what I mean? Uh, do it big style, he would say. Do it fucking big style. And then he'd boogie off into the night. You know what I mean? But all jokes aside. <laughs> We love Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sad to see him go. Uh, we're, we're lucky enough that we can see you again when we turn on the television, the DVDs and Blu-rays, brother. Yeah. Uh, you did leave something with the world, and for that, we thank you. So yeah. for everybody out, everybody out there listening, be well, and we'll catch you all on the next episode of The... What is it, Hawk? What shows this? I have amnesia. Boombasticast. Amnesia. <laughs> Who am I? Who am I? You are Mr. Matthew Fisher. Whoa! 
And this must be the Boombastic cast. Okay. Okay. Milk them all back now. Milk them all back. Okay. Milk them all back now. Milk them all back. Okay. Milk them all back now. Milk them all back. Okay. They'll come all back. They'll come all back now. Okay. They'll come all back. Okay. You know what I'm talking about.